Real variety for your workday. listening to the Fat Doctor podcast. If you're looking for something a little bit different to all the noise that's being churned out to the airways nowadays, then you're in the right place. We're going to be talking all about the modern day religion that is healthism and how it relates to weight stigma. So all you need to do is sit back, relax and pay attention. Welcome to episode seven. Today we are speaking to a hero of mine, the author of one of my absolute most favourite books that I've ever read, Deshaun Harrison, author of the book Belly of the Beast. If you haven't read this book, I cannot recommend it enough and I will be referring to it regularly throughout this episode. We're challenging the sixth law of healthism today, which is that we owe society a debt of health, that people in poor health are a drain on society. The healthy few end up paying for the lazy, unhealthy masses. So far, we've talked to Emma and Lily and Rachel about whether health is something that we can control, whether we have any real say in our health. And last week, we talked to Michelle. We talked more about the value of health, the moral value, the moral worth, the currency of health. And I actually like that word, currency of health, because this time we're talking about a debt of health. You know, that that speaks about currency, doesn't it? This idea that those of us who are quote unquote healthy contribute to the world, pay their debt to the world, whatever that debt may be. And people who are not in good health are essentially a drain on society. They are costing society rather than contributing. And when I think about that statement, I think about just to begin with how ableist that is. <laughs> the idea that you have to be in good health in order to be able to contribute to society. Some of the biggest contributors to society have been people in really poor health. Um, just think about it. Stephen Hawking's had a form of motor neurone disease and Winston Churchill had bipolar disease. And um, I feel sad that I've only come up with two white men. (laughs) I'm sure there's many more examples. But I I think ultimately what I'm trying to say here is that you don't have to be healthy to contribute to society. You know, even if we could define health, which we've already established, we can't define health. Even if uh, we could control health, even though we've established that you can't control it. Even if you could do both of those things, you can still be quote unquote unhealthy and contributes a significant amount to the world, whether it's through art, whether it's through, you know, sport, whether it's through encouraging other people, whether it's through discoveries, through inventions, you can contribute so much, regardless of your health status, your size, your shape, etc, etc. I think most of us can agree with this. But this idea of currency, you know, this idea that people always talk about, well, fat people are such a drain on society, they cost the healthcare system so much, is such an odd one to me. Because we're all paying into the healthcare system. Whether you live in the UK and you're paying towards the NHS or you live in a country where you're paying health insurance, like we're all paying for health. And as we learned from Lily O'Hara in episodes four and five, actually, when there are large discrepancies in wealth, you see the most amount of poor health outcomes. So this idea that it's the people who are poor and in, in poor health that are a drain on society is actually just a way of covering up the fact that it's rich people, very wealthy few, uh, the 1%, the CEOs of the industrial complexes that determine so much of what happens in our world, they 
are the drain on society. They are the ones that are ruining our health. No one else. They steal and they hoard all of our resources like dragons, you know? They they keep it all for themselves and they don't allow us to have any. And yet it's easier to blame the most vulnerable amongst us, the most oppressed amongst us, than it is to blame the ones that are actually causing the most amount of damage. Deshaun Harrison is a black, fat, queer and trans theorist and abolitionist in Atlanta, Georgia. They are the author of Belly of the Beast, the politics of anti-fatness as anti-blackness. And they're a public speaker who often gives talks and leads workshops on blackness, queerness, gender, fatness, disabilities and their intersections. Deshaun currently serves as the editor-at-large for Scalawag magazine. When I first read Belly of the Beast, I was both shocked and whatever the opposite of shocked is. I knew that anti-blackness was responsible for so many of the challenges that people are facing in society today. And not just black people, but certainly black people first and foremost. But I also never understood how it all connected, how it impacted things like the war on crime and incarceration of black men within the penitentiary system in the US. I never understood how the war on quote-unquote obesity was founded on anti-blackness. And this book really just sort of changed so many things for me and made me realise that we can't really have this conversation about why we have been led to believe as a society that fat people are a drain and lack the moral currency, if you will, that thin people do. We can't have this conversation unless we're willing to have a conversation about anti-blackness and about racism. And I know this puts a lot of people off. I know for a fact that this particular episode will be downloaded less than all of the other episodes that I've done so far. It, it, you know, it happened in series one, it will happen again in series two, no doubt. Because a lot of people aren't comfortable having these conversations. A lot of people don't want to talk about racism, either because it doesn't particularly concern them, because they're not black, uh, or, you know, person of colour or person of culture, or they don't like it because it makes them feel like for want of a better word, the bad guy, the villain of the story. And, you know, we have to remember that this isn't about individuals. This is about society. And in my opinion, you're not a villain unless you're not willing to listen, to learn and to do something about the fact that the weight stigma that you are experiencing today is based on anti-blackness. And unless you're willing to tackle that anti-blackness, you're never going to be able to help yourself when it comes to weight stigma. So you don't have to feel guilty when listening to this podcast, but you do need to listen. And you may find some of what Deshaun has to say slightly shocking. But if you give it a chance, you'll realise that they are making some flipping incredible statements and reflections that we are so lucky to be able to learn from today. So the first thing I did with Deshaun, as with all my other guests so far, is to ask them what health means to them. Yeah, so health to me is violence. Uh, the very the very idea of health itself is a violent one, one on which the subjugation of black folks and therefore fat folks is built. Um, and it is the very foundation of, or it in relationship to various other things, is the foundation of the of the harm, the abuse that black folks writ large and black fat folks specifically experience in the world. Um, and so for me, it is, it is not divisible from anti-blackness. 
uh, and therefore not divisible from anti-fatness. So health is a form of violence for me and something that I'm always looking to remove myself from and, and to, to get away from altogether. So health is violence. I mean, when you think about it, that is so true. I've talked about this a lot recently, how violent and abusive the healthcare system can be. Two people in larger bodies, especially minorities in larger bodies. I'm talking abuse. I'm talking about bullying, you know, just schoolyard bullying tactics. I'm talking about shaming and humiliating, gaslighting. I'm talking about denying people basic human rights based on a flawed system of measuring health, which is the BMI. You know, people are denied operations. They are denied investigative procedures purely based on their BMI, which is discrimination. It's blatant. It's obvious. And yet it happens on a daily basis. It is a very violent system. But that's the system that we live in. Is that really health itself? Or is it the association that we have with the word health? Language itself is not always necessarily um, violent. But when we attribute certain understandings of language to a word, then that word becomes violent as well as the the attribution. Um, and so for me, it's like health itself may not have been used at, at the, the foundation, right? When, when um, white anthropologists and white, you know, eugenicists and race scientists were, were harming, abusing, um, black folks, slaves in the name of science, they may have, they may not have been using the word health and that work helped to set the precedent for and helped to create the foundation of the medical industry within the U S and therefore throughout the world, because we know the ways that imperialism creates the conditions for the West to control what happens throughout the entire world. And therefore anti-blackness is a global structure. Um, they may not have been using the word health to 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 describe those moments, but those moments helped to set the precedent for what health would become. And now we are experiencing, right, you know, a, a health system, a healthcare system where BMI is is determining who is and is not healthy, um, and and that is something that was created by a race scientist, right? We're experiencing um, a healthcare system, a medical industry that is so deeply anti-black that is inherently anti-black and some of the, the the first moments of of medical diagnosis we ever experience are happening to slaves who are trying to become free from slavery right um so these are the foundations of the medical industry the foundations of health and that is why for me it's the language itself as well as the very things that help to create the conditions for how we learn to describe things as healthy. So before we continue, there's something that we all need to come to terms with. And that is the origin story of modern medicine. Around the time when the American Medical Association was first coming about, when physicians went from being relatively unimportant within the fabric of society to being some of the most esteemed and valued members of society, when Western colonised medicine first really came to power, the world was in the midst of a race war. And some of the kind of founders of modern medicine were eugenicists, were race scientists. 
And they wanted to find a way to elevate the white race while simultaneously oppressing the black race. And that is the very foundation of modern medicine. As Deshaun puts it, Your profession is built on the subjugation of black people. Full stop. Um, I think that that is, that is the only answer that's necessary because that answer leads you to every other answer that you may need. I'm really interested in this idea of some people being literally excluded from the definition of health. And of course, as we talked about before, the definition of health differs depending on whom you ask. But for most of us, when we think about health, when we think about what health means, for most doctors, when you ask them, what does health mean? There are certain groups of people who are automatically disqualified from ever being healthy because of their skin colour, because of their body mass index, because of where they carry their weight, because of their disability, because of their gender. And so being disqualified from health altogether from the day you're born until the day that you die must have a very profound effect on people. Yeah, I think that there that there are so many different, you know, ways that that, that, that impacts Black folks altogether. I think that, you know, so many Black folks culturally have internalized this, this idea um, where I think that we know, even if we don't have the language for it, I think that we know that we will never quite be what what is the standard for health. Um, and so instead of recognizing that as a product of an anti-Black structure, um, a lot of us internalize that and, and, and take it as a way to say, okay, well, how can, how can I do this, this, and this to become healthy, right? So now we overemphasize the need for diet culture. We overemphasize the need for gym culture. We overemphasize the need for fitness culture, right? We, we, we overdo the, th- the things that, that white folks never actually have to, um, that non-black folks never actually have to, um, as a way to sort of, what's the word I want to use here as a way to sort of integrate ourselves into, into the larger cultural understanding of, of what health is and how we're supposed to present. Um, and it's something that, you know, I'm always very careful with when I'm talking about, when I'm talking about this, especially to other black folks, I'm careful to consider, you know, the, the implications of all of this, because how do you sit with the fact that, Every single day of your life, you've been told, well, you know, fat black folks are dying at disproportionate rates of diabetes and high cholesterol and and obesity, quote unquote, and all of, all of these terms and terminology and, and that black folks have horrible, you know, um, diets and that our our cultural foods are things that are bad for us that are killing us. Right. And and that, you know, you go to, do- to the doctor and nothing that you seem to do works for you. Every time you go to the doctor, they find more pills to put you on. They find more medications to to prescribe you. Right. You know, and all of a sudden the blame becomes on you, right? The onus is now on you to fix all of the the years long, centuries long issues with the medical industry. So I'm very careful to, to consider all of that because it's not an easy thing to unlearn, nor is it an easy thing to think past. Um, but it, it has such a deep, deep, deep rooted, um, I think, impact on the ways that we look at ourselves and, and at one another and the world uh, and, and how difficult it makes it for us to, to navigate the world then because everything that we consider is is not about us anymore. It's about everyone else and everything else um, and and the things that we've had to internalize about what we've been told about ourselves and our bodies. 
You know, I'm not sure blame has a place in healthcare. Why do we need to blame anyone? It doesn't make sense to me because you're perfectly capable of doing your job and achieving what you want to achieve without blaming anyone. In fact, I would argue that blaming people actually makes your job a lot harder. And in fact, you know, you're far less likely to be successful if you blame someone rather than trying to work with them. So you've got to wonder, like, why? Why do so many doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals blame their patients? A lot of the time it's because we don't know the answers. We don't have the answers. And actually, there's more things we don't know than there are things we do know. Many times a person will be sitting in front of me and telling me their symptoms and I won't have the first clue what's wrong with them. I could make an educated guess. I could run some tests. I could have a good working diagnosis, a good theory, a good hypothesis. But I'll never really know. You know, a lot of it is best guess. And when you're training to be a doctor or a healthcare professional, quite often you are taught that you have to have the answers. They're expected of you. And we're kind of taught to bullshit. You know, like when you when you start medical school and you're going on rounds and, you know, you're, you're in your little white lab coats following these very arrogant senior doctors around and they put you in front of a patient and start asking random questions while this patient is partially undressed and it's all very awkward and very uncomfortable. And you just learn the art of bullshit. You learn the art of bluffing because it's the only way to survive medical school, really. I think by the time we've qualified, we are already at a stage where we simply cannot admit that we don't know, because in the past that's got us into trouble. And also because we want to look good in front of our colleagues, we want to look professional, and also because most of us are pretty damn arrogant and we like the idea that we know everything. So when you don't know something, it's easier to blame someone else. It makes life easier for you, you know, rather than trying to learn, trying to figure it out, which is often quite complicated. It's easier to blame people. It's easier to blame weight, that's for sure. It's easier to say, well, you know, if you lost some weight, you'd get better. There's no way to prove that's right or wrong. And and since we work in such a fat phobic medical system, no one's going to get cross with us if we say that. There's not going to be any repercussions for saying that. So it's just a really easy cop-out blame. It's a really easy cop-out. And I think that members of the public and society in general are taking their cue from us as healthcare professionals. You know, they're watching us blame people and they are beginning to blame the same people. You know, journalists are reporting on it and people are talking about it on social media. And before you know it, it's it's not just doctors who are doing this, it's everybody. As someone who has never experienced anti-blackness or racism of any kind within the medical system, I feel it's so important to listen to those who have to have some understanding of how one navigates the medical system in a black body. Yeah, so it's always, um, for me, I I like to always say first, like, that anti-blackness is illogical. There is no logic in anti-blackness, and therefore you will always be living in a state of contradiction. Um, That is is the meaning of life, to live in a state of contradiction for as long as life means anti-blackness. And so... I'm prefacing it with that to say a lot of times I will get very, very scared, right? I'm, I'm like, I know that there's something happening in my body. I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't know what to do about it. And there are these medical professionals who are supposed to know what to do. So I should go to the hospital. I should go to the doctor. I should go to, to see, you know, someone who can help me with this. And then on the flip side, I'm, I'm scared because I know that 
nine times out of 10, I will meet a medical professional who actually does not care about what's happening in my body, who will not honor what's happening in my body, who will not honor the words that I'm giving them to explain what's happening in my body, who will not show up for me when I need them to show up for me, who will not care for me in the ways that I need them to care for me. Um, and so it's a continued, a continuous back and forth. Um, and more often than not, because I have anxiety, what wins is, is, my anxiety and therefore I, I'm now stacking up more medical bills um, to to go and get comforted by a doctor telling me that, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just I'm just too fat. Um, and I, I think that there's something there as well about the ways that we learn as as victims of abuse. And I am calling anti-blackness abuse um, to find comfort in our abusers. Um, and I think that there's something very, very deep rooted there too, but that's a different conversation. Um, so yeah, I, you know, oftentimes I will go see a doctor. I will go see, um, either a primary care doctor or, um, a doctor at the ER or an urgent care to try to get an understanding of what's happening in my body. And oftentimes I don't, oftentimes, um, I don't get anything. And then many times I psych myself out so much that I'm having an anxiety attack around going versus not going that by the time, you know, I decide that I'm going to go, I, if there was something wrong, I would have died already. Um, and so it's just like, you know, there's just, there's such a complicated relationship that I have to, to doctors and to medical professionals and to hoping that, you know, I will, maybe this time I'll be cared for properly. Um, should I, choose to seek the care that I've been told for my entire life that I'm supposed to seek whenever I'm in need. Um, yeah, it's a constant back and forth. But like I said, I think because anti-blackness is illogical, there is no logic in it. And therefore, we're always living in a state of contradiction. The idea that victims of abuse often find comfort in their abusers resonated so much with me. And I was really keen to explore that more with Deshaun. What did they mean by this? Why is it that even though black people know that they will be mistreated by their own doctors, by their own healthcare professionals, they still often hold them in high regard. Yeah, I, I think the, the simple answer is slavery. <laughs> um, I think that we have been continuously conditioned to believe in authority, even if we know that authority is abusive. Um, and that manifests itself even today through the ways that we prioritize, uplift doctors, um, I, I think that it also has to do with class, right? We think of doctors as rich and therefore because doctors are rich and we are typically disproportionately poor, there must be something that they have, some knowledge that they have that we don't have, that we have to look at, that we have to consider, that we have to think about because no way would these people who are classed in a way that we are not, um, you know, not be able to to offer us something because they have the knowledge, right? You know, everyone who is rich is smart. That's the thought, and a lot of a, a lot of times. Um, so I think that yeah, the the simplest answer is slavery. Is that we are con we have been conditioned from that very moment to believe in authority to to assign power to authority and and that authority has always been assigned or that power has always been assigned to authority figures um because of or rather despite the fact um that 
authority is also abusive. And perhaps I was actually right in saying because, um, you know, I think that it's also true that we have been conditioned to believe in the power of authority because of their abusiveness. I think that abuse oftentimes is power. Um, and we we are taught to internalize abuse and power as as synonymous and therefore, um, you know, for for there to be a respect of authority, um, there must be abuse present. Um, and if abuse is present, then you must also, you know, um, place them on a particular pedestal, even if you recognize the violence. Um, I think it's a continuous um, motion of harm that not just black folks deal with, but that I think um, I'm only interested in talking about with regards to black folks. Now, my colleagues aren't going to appreciate me saying this, but I believe that many healthcare professionals enjoy the power. They enjoy the status. They enjoy the respect, the automatic respect that comes with it. And that often crosses the line into abuse of said power. And we do. We do it all the time. And I I put my hands up and say I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else. You know, it's not all doctors, but it's probably most of them. And even if it isn't all doctors, it's enough of them to have caused this problem in the first place. And so, you know, we as an entire profession have a responsibility to hold our colleagues to account, even if we're not doing it ourselves. We have to hold our colleagues to account. That's part of our code of conduct. So I would say that many of us, if not all of us, abuse our power from time to time. So is there any way that we can fix this problem? Is there any way that we can make the health profession less abusive to certain individuals? I'm not entirely sure that I have an answer to that. I think that, um, again, thinking through the the state of contradiction, um, I, on the one hand, am always trying to implore doctors who, who claim to care um, to show up differently for their fat black patients. Um, and, and I do think that's important for as long as the medical industry does exist. Um, and I am always committed to putting doctors out of business. Um, and so I think that th- that would be that would be what I state to them, too, is, you know, um, show up for your fat black patients while also working towards the end of your profession. Um, I think that that is that is the mandate for me. That is the call. Um, because to me, the end of that profession is only made possible through the destruction of anti-blackness. Um, and so if anti-blackness is destroyed, if this global structure is destroyed, then that means that we've accomplished something to where we don't need doctors anymore in that way, at least. Um, and so that is, I think my continuous call to action, my continual mandate is, um, you know, show up in much, much, much better ways for your fat black patients because you will continue to have them and also work towards the 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 end of anti-blackness. That is, that's the call. Show up for your black patients whilst also working towards the end of your profession. That's the most mind-blowing thing I've heard in a really long time and I love everything about it. You know, I am not an expert, 
But as far as I am aware, if you have a building that is um, subsiding and is essentially crumbling to the ground because the foundations of that building are rotten and so beyond repair that they're just not going to keep that building up for much longer. The only solution to my knowledge is to tear that building down, dig up those foundations and start again. There isn't another way to fix a house that doesn't have solid enough foundations to keep it upright. You can plaster over the cracks in the walls and, you know, you can try and keep it up for a little while. It's not going to work. Eventually that house is going to crumble. And so the only solution is to destroy it and start again. And people might think, oh, that's just ridiculous. How could you possibly destroy the medical profession? I suppose we're always going to need people to care for the sick, but... As it stands today, the medical industrial complex, in my opinion, is simply not fit for purpose. So I love the idea of putting doctors out of business, even though I am a doctor and I I don't really want to be put out of business. I love this idea because I think it is the only solution. I think that there isn't another solution available to us. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that will disagree with me, but I'd bet you every single one of those people are the the people who are benefiting from the status quo, the people who are enjoying the healthcare system as it stands today. Anyone else, you don't have to be black, whether you're disabled or whether you're fat. Let's face it, if you're fat, you are not getting the most out of the healthcare system. We are living in a world where there is a two-tier healthcare system and you are not in first class, my friend. You're travelling in coach all the way. So actually, I reckon there's a lot of people out there that like the idea of a medical system that is not based on anti-blackness, that is not based on anti-fatness, that is not based on ableism or capitalism. A medical system where, say, drug companies don't get to involve themselves in our research A medical system in which doctors are not financially incentivized to withhold treatment from certain groups of people, to punish certain groups of people, to abuse, in fact, certain groups of people. Imagine a medical system in which everyone was treated fairly and equally. I mean, it's a ludicrous idea because our medical system is just so far away from that. You know, it doesn't seem like it's possible. And so Deshaun is right. The only way to fix it is tear it down and start again. How do we do that though? You know, Deshaun suggested that we need to show up for our black patients. How do we do that? Well, I think that's, I think that's a question for them to ask their patients, right? Um, I think that like a lot of times we do get questions like, or I, I won't say we, I get questions like this very often. And I'm always like, you know, I theorize around fat black people, but I don't speak for every fat black person. Um, we all have different experiences with doctors. We all have different experiences with our bodies. We all show up differently in, in the world. And so our specific needs will look different depending on the individual. Um, and so I think doctors should get a baseline understanding of how to treat fat patients, fat black patients in general. I think that that's an easy thing to do is to get that baseline understanding, but then also to actually have honest and open to conversations with your patients. I think oftentimes doctors do not do this because just as black folks have internalized doctors as authority figures, doctors have also internalized themselves as authority figures and therefore they have power over people and don't feel the need to ask questions, the need to admit that they just don't know. Um, But I think that if you simply say like, hey, I'm recognizing the fact that 
this is not something that we are actually taught in medical school, that this is not something that, that we're taught to prioritize in medical school, and I want to be better to you as a doctor so that I can better treat you as my patient, what type of needs do you have from me or for me, I think is is the perfect way to go about that. And not every patient will have an answer. They may not know. But what it does do is open up a, a door for them to consider that maybe their doctor does not know everything and also consider that maybe there's more for them to think about and leaves room for them to come back to you with those answers. Um, for me, I would tell my doctor, you know, I don't feel like I need to step on a scale every time I come here. Right. I don't feel like I need to consider or think about what my weight is or is not every time I come here. Right. Um, you know. I know what's happening in my body, and I would like for you to consider my words when I say what's happening in my body instead of considering what you believe to be happening in my body and not listening to what I'm telling you. Um, you know, there, I think I've, I've had just a significant amount of experiences with doctors who just simply do not listen, um, who believe that they know it all, that they know everything for themselves and that that's enough. And I, I think that would be how I would answer that question. I recently saw a meme on social media that said there are, and I think this statistic is right, there are 42 million black people in America, which means there are 42 million ways to be black in America. And I really love that. You know, we cannot expect one person to speak on behalf of all black people. We cannot expect one person to speak on behalf of any group of people. What about fat activism? (sighs) Well, for one, I think that Fat activism and fat scholarship has just been for so long very overwhelmingly white um, and very overwhelmingly centered around cis women. Um, And I think that that is the biggest issue that that I have um, because I think it doesn't really leave room at all for any consideration um, of the many other people and bodies that are harmed by anti-fatness. Um, so that's the biggest thing for me. I also think that, you know, that means that centering and having black fat folks as part of everything that you do um, in, fat, in fat activism work is essential to making sure that that there is a deeper analysis being offered because there's only so much there's only white folks are not able to get past their whiteness. Right. So there's only so much of an analysis you can offer um, that is substantial uh, if if the only people in your space are also white um, and the only people informing your politic are all white. Um, so I think that that's a, a second thing for me. I also think that fat activism in so many ways has really become overarchingly inundated by thin people and by dietitians and quote-unquote anti-diet professionals. And I want to be careful when I say this because I don't want to exclude any of of these folks. I follow a lot of people on Instagram, for example, who are brilliant nutritionists, brilliant dietitians who um, I, I think offer a lot to the conversation. But I think that for as long as that conversation is not specific to fatness or anti-fatness it will never do enough work to to one honor the the lives on which their analysis is built which is 
fat folks and, and, and fat scholars, but also it will never quite do enough for um, the people that it should be most benefiting, which are fat folks. Um, and so I, I think that there's just a lot of thin people who have become a part of the mainstream conversation um, around anti-fatness and around anti-diet culture and around, you know, um, you know, dieting and, and all the things. And I think that that is just a really, really harmful, very harmful um, thing because it removes fat folks from the platforms that thin folks get to have um, and also therefore takes the conversation away from anti-fatness and moves it towards something else that doesn't benefit fat folks. So, yeah, I think that those are like three big things for me. So how did Deshaun get involved in this kind of fat activism? Where did it all begin? Uh, in 2016, 2017, I discovered fat scholarship um, through Twitter. I was just online and um, had become mutuals, I think, accidentally with um, different like fat scholars um, who had done like a lot of amazing work online and it forced me to read more. It forced me to, to pick up lots of books and read different articles. And as I did, it gave me so much language for things that I'd never been able to describe before that I never had language for before that I always thought that perhaps were, you know, individual experiences. Um, and so after I, I did a significant amount of reading, I was like, wow, this is really amazing. And I have yet to really find anything that really, really, really gets at the heart of who I am. Um, you know, either things were about fat folks altogether and there was no racial analysis or things were about um, fat black folks, but their the gender analysis was was specific to cis women or, you know, there were things, there was the one book that I, I am in love with, Heavy, by Kiese, that to me is autoethnography, but it's specific to his experience as a fat black boy slash man, um, cis boy slash cis man. Um, and so it was like, you know, there was always just a missing piece in something that I was reading. There was like, you know, there's, there's something here that either lacks a racial analysis or a trans analysis or, you know, a, a larger gender analysis. Um, and so I knew that that meant that that was something that I needed to write. Um, there was something that I needed to put out into the world that would fill in those pieces for me. I'm sure there are still missing pieces for many people because we all do not have the same uh, identities. And therefore, there are many identities that we will miss. But it filled in those missing pieces for me. And, and I'm hoping for people who are like me to be able to have the racial and gendered analysis in their fat analysis um, that really does bring us closer to an understanding of who we are and how we arrive here. Um, and so that's that's sort of how I got here. You know, in 2016, 2017, it taught me a lot. And I've been doing a lot of reading and writing ever since. Um, and since that moment, I have really embarked on a journey that I just could never have imagined. And now I'm here. <laughs> I'm going to own up to the fact that I am not a great reader. Um <laughs> went to medical school, read a lot of books, um, read a lot of fiction, but I struggle with nonfiction. I really do. And there are some books that 
I love and I cannot put down. But a lot of the sort of non-fiction stuff that's out there, I really struggle with it. And I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's just because I prefer to allow myself to drift off into a fantasy world whenever I'm reading and, and reading non-fiction feels like a chore. It feels like, like I'm back at school or because I'm, I'm not great at reading. Like I can't just read something and automatically understand it. So perhaps it's that. Um, I know a lot of people out there that struggle with reading, maybe because they have dyslexia or they find it hard to concentrate. So there's a whole host of reasons why people might struggle with reading all of these fantastic books that people keep talking about. And I asked Deshaun, what would you advise those particular individuals? Well, I think that that was the beauty of of Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, is that so many folks, so many of us were finding language through what I like to call this sort of pop sociology um, or this this pop fat studies um, that I thought was brilliant. It gave us, you know, it, it really brought so much of the language that we got from these books, these out of the books or the academic articles and gave it to us in a very accessible way to where you didn't really need to to have read a book, right? You read like a, a 13 tweet long thread on Twitter or you read this long Facebook post or this long um, Tumblr post and, and that became where you got your information from. However, I, I think that something that I caution against and that I've become very weary of um, and I, I am saying this with the hopes that I don't sound like, you know, a boomer, <laughs> but something that I've become very weary of in this space is that a lot of what we see now online is we've gotten so removed from picking up a book that things have become just very provocative. Um, language around what we experience has become, you know, provocative or something meant to be reactionary and not something that's meant to teach. Um, and I think that that has become a really big issue for me because it removes the scholarship, it removes the theory from from what all of this actually means, um, and then makes it and turns it into a, a a moment of something to be argued. Now it's like an opinionated thing and not something that's rooted in in study and rigorous study. Um, so, you know, I what I I guess I would say is that there's a ton of sources online that don't require you to read a book. You know, there are, there are many articles that are not academic articles. There are many, many, many Twitter threads and Facebook posts and Tumblr posts and many blog posts, you know, um, from folks who are writing in the, in the era of blogging that you can read that I think are really brilliant and very important pieces of work. There are also many videos on YouTube. There are many podcasts that happen. There are many um, you know, like different different mediums that people use um, that are not book reading or book writing. And, and I would really, really, really encourage folks to at some point get to a place where you can pick up a book to read. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, the most academic piece of writing, right? Like, you know, I know not not everyone, like if you're really, really, really new to, Fat studies, you may not want to pick up Fear in the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. It may not be the easiest read for you at that point. Um, but, you know, there's the Fat Studies Reader um, that I think is really, really accessible. Um, there, There is Fat Activism by Charlotte Cooper. Um, and so, you know, there's like there's a lot of easier texts to read, albeit white texts. 
um, that I think are are good for people who are who are sort of newcomers. But I do think it's very necessary to at some point pick up a book to to really see where the language that you found online is coming from because there is so much about what's happening online now that's just very much provocative and not very, not really contributing much anymore to um, the canon. There are tons of resources out there and I agree with Deshaun that we have to be careful um, about what we're reading and who we're listening to. Um, curious that they didn't mention their own podcast though. I know, I know, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll give like a little quick little rundown for, for folks. Um, Unsolicited Fatty Talk Back is, it is an, a new podcast um, that we just started, I think maybe a month ago, give or take, maybe a month and a half ago. No, that's not true. I'm lying. It's about a month and a half ago at this point. Um, and it's, it's so much fun with me and four other of my co-hosts who also are my friends, Caleb Luna, who I love and respect so much. Jordan Hall, who I also love and respect so much. Mikey, who I also love and respect so much. And Brian, who I love and respect dearly. Um, all of us have have come together. We all do have various marginalized identities. You know, uh, we're all queer. Some of us are trans. Some of us are disabled. Um, some of us are black. Some of us are, you know, Southern. And and, and some of us come from families that um, are of made up of immigrants, like, you know, just various experiences that we have um, in this group. And yeah, it's it's really us trying to offer something different. Um, I think that there, there are critiques to be had of a lot of the more mainstream podcasts that are happening where either, you know, they're done by thin folks or they're done by mostly white folks. And so now we have this space where the only white person in our in our space is Jordan, <laughs> um, and everyone else is is black or otherwise racialized, and um, and we all come from very very different marginalized experiences. Um, that just makes it just to 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 me just a very important podcast where we get to really theorize around our lives, but also talk about like you said funny shit and 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 get people laughing and making making fat studies fun. Making fat study something that you want to learn about, something that you want to embrace, something that you want to be a part of, because it's not just about the scholarship, but also we get to laugh as five fat people who just have found each other on the Internet. So, yeah. Oh, gosh, I enjoyed recording that so much. I'm so grateful for Deshaun to take time out of their very busy schedule and to record with me. Um, for this incredible book, Belly of the Beast, as I said, you know, you ought to read it. Everyone ought to read it. It's one of those books that you can probably read in a day or under. It's not very long. And it's all about stuff that's very relevant to modern day history. So you'll get swept away with it quite, quite easily. One of the uh, most profound chapters for me was a chapter that um, spoke about the transmasculine experience. And instead of looking at sort of journals and articles, Deschamps kind of provided some lived experience. And I found that really useful. And the lived experience section of the book, it's not something that we see in scholarship that often. It's almost sort of looked down upon, you know, who cares about what one or two people say, you know, we need numbers, we need data, but that's in itself a very white supremacist ideal. 
numbers and data don't necessarily mean anything and we can easily sort of manipulate data to make it support our own agenda. Whereas these lived experiences were very rich and very meaningful to read through. And I love that section of the book, but actually every single chapter of the book, you know, provides so much perspective. And, And basically, in my opinion, fills in a lot of the gaps where so far we've been lacking in this kind of discourse about fatness and fat politics and body liberation. Please buy the book. Join me next time when we challenge law number seven of the laws of healthism, which is that good health should be our number one priority. And I am going to be speaking to a friend of Deshaun's, Caleb Luna. You may know them as Chairbreaker and they are a fantastic human being, perhaps one of the sweetest, kindest people you'll ever meet, you will find it impossible not to fall in love with them. And they have also just released a book. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that book. Caleb is one of the five members of Unsolicited Fatties Talkback, the podcast that Deshaun was just talking about. And I will link that podcast to the show notes so that you don't miss out on it please go and like and follow it. It's it's a fantastic podcast. I cannot recommend it enough. So should good health be our number one priority? Let's talk to Caleb about it next week. Until then. Folks, I don't know if you've heard, but I have recently launched a campaign called Hashtag No Way. You can head on over to the website www.noway.org, find out all about the things I've been getting up to over the last few months. I've created a free resource for individuals who are experiencing weight stigma within the medical profession and for health professionals who are keen to learn about weight-inclusive care. There is loads and loads of information available on the website, loads of lived experiences, loads of resources, and also opportunities for you to join the movement, to join the Hashtag No Way campaign, and to help end medical weight stigma. Don't forget, I have a Patreon account for those who are interested in supporting the podcast. Also, lots of extra goodies that you get, including face-to-face chats with yours truly. I have my website, www.fatdoctor.co.uk, and I have my monthly webinars called The Waiting Room, in which I do a deep dive into the research for a particular condition and information about weight-inclusive care. If you're interested in supporting me financially, you can do so through my Patreon or through my website. And don't forget that a new episode for Series 2 will be available every Wednesday, wherever you listen to your podcast. Join me next week.